the holiday of Rosh Hashanah is swiftly approaching us. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be marking the new year, the beginning of one year, the end of the other year. We say goodbye to the curses of the past year, and we embrace the potential and the beauty and the unbridled joy of the future. And I was thinking to share some thoughts about the essence of the holiday of Rosh Hashanah and also some tips and tidbits that we could use to get in the right frame of mind for the holiday. I want to begin by telling you what I did over the summer. Uh, Every summer for the past six years, our family has gotten into a minivan and driven to Canada, about 1,700 miles. Now, this year, we did something different because in previous years, we always did an overnight. And the benefits of driving through the night, of course, are the fact that there's much you know fewer cars on the road, there's less traffic, less congestion. You can just drive, there's fewer st- times you got to stop for bathroom breaks, and you just stop every four or five hours for gas and keep on going. This year, we made two changes. First of all, we don't drive overnight anymore. And second of all, we don't do it in two days, we do it in three days, which makes it a much more manageable trip for our family. It's still kind of chaotic. Uh, thank God we have five children and uh, enough provisions for the whole summer. Think about that all. Every nook and cranny of the minivan is totally full and packed, but it's fun. It's snug. And it was, again, another year, another great experience. But two years ago, in the summer of... 2016, I did something absolutely insane. What happened was that our car needed to be serviced. So the plan was to drive on Sunday and drive and have a few days of of a drive. Problem was that we brought the car just to check it up and bring it to the mechanic and needed a whole bunch of work. So we couldn't leave on Sunday. Car wasn't ready. I call, call up the mechanic on Monday or on Tuesday. No, car's not ready. Car's not ready. Finally, we get the car on Wednesday night. And we had a choice. Do we drive Wednesday night and try to make it in time for Shabbos in Toronto? Or do we wait till after Shabbos? So we decided we're going to do it. We're going to get in the car and we're going to drive and we're going to not stop until we reach Canada. So in essence, we drove for... 31 hours almost uninterrupted through this magnificent country of ours until we arrived late, late Thursday night, early Friday morning, we arrived at our destination. Now, as you can imagine, doing such a trip, driving with a car full of children and uh, two adults and all kinds of gear, driving halfway across the continent uh, overnight and not stopping, obviously there's a lot of danger involved. Uh, and of course, one of the deals that me and my wife have is that I drive and she deals with all the kids' squabbles in the back. I'm not changing diapers. I'm not mediating any sort of inner family disputes. I'm driving. She has everything else. And I was thinking, that has hit me once at like three or four in the morning, like, I am right now piloting this vehicle with all this human cargo and it's a middle line. I'm kind of tired. I have some Mountain Dew in my system. I have a five-hour energy, 
but I'm still kind of getting a little drowsy. And of course, that's the most dangerous thing that you could possibly imagine. Of course, none of us want to think of just, we know people, we know stories of times where people were in in, in car accidents. Everyone seems to know someone that was in a car accident. Uh, people that got, uh, God forbid, injured, God forbid. And it, it's it happens all the time. And I'm thinking as I'm driving this car, like how terrifying is it how how quickly things could go bad and how devastating uh, those consequences. And then I was thinking, well, how like how we, could we raise the stakes? You know, I have seven passengers or six passengers. Well, what if I was driving a bus with 55 children? Or I was piloting a commercial airliner with 200 or 300 passengers? Uh, or suppose... There was the president flying Air Force One, uh, or your cruise ship captain, and there's 2,500 souls on your vehicle. Or suppose you're Paul Warfield Tibbetts Jr., and you're flying the Enola Gay to bomb Hiroshima. And essentially, the weight of the world is on your shoulders. I'm thinking as we kind of are upgrading, we're raising the stage, how important is it? That the person piloting this aircraft, the person manning the ship, the person who's at the wheels, that they're on top of their game. That their mind is clear, is focused, is they're not distracted, they're not drowsy, they're, they can concentrate on their tasks. And God forbid if they have any distractions, how important is it that they're able to operate at total capacity and to remove and dispel any distractions? With this introduction... I want to share with you a teaching in the Rambam. The Rambam says that each one of us is essentially at the wheel and behind us in the vehicle and the passengers is all of humanity. All of humanity is resting on our shoulders. I want to read to you the Rambam. This is the Rambam, Maimonides, in the Laws of Repentance, Chapter 3, Halacha 4. I'm going to read this in English. Every person has to view him or herself as if they are exactly balanced between good and bad, between righteousness and wickedness. So we're exactly 50-50, right in the middle. Not only that, the entire world, not just me, but if you take the collective sum of the character, of the morality of all of the world, it's also exactly even. There's 50% on one side, 50% on the other side. It's not tipping the scale in either way. And everyone has to view themselves, says the Rambam, quoting from the Talmud, as if everything's exactly balanced. And therefore, every deed that you do you're tipping the scale not only for yourself and you're moving the needle in kind of who you are and determining what your balance is, which side are you leaning, veering towards, but the entire world is going to be shifting with every one of your actions. You do a mitzvah, you do a righteous deed, you do an act of kindness, you do something positive, then not only are you moving over to one camp, to the righteous camp, but you're dragging the entire world to the path of being in God's favor. Conversely, if you choose the opposite side, if you opt 
for rejecting the the right thing to do. You'd opt for the quote-unquote sin. You opt for ignoring God. You kind of move it in that direction. Not only are you imperiling yourself, are you almost giving yourself a verdict, moving yourself to the other camp, but you're moving the entire world with you. You're pivoting the whole world and you're condemning the whole world to have to face, so to speak, God's wrath for being in the unfortunate position of having their sins outweighing their mitzvos. That's what the Ramam says. So I'm thinking, what this in effect means, that each one of us is, so to speak, we, we have a lot on our shoulders. We're at the wheel of the vehicle of life, not only of our own life, but the life of all of humanity. Everything is on our shoulder. Everything depends upon me. There is a very famous teaching in the Talmud, it's actually in the Mishnah, and this teaching stems from part of the interrogation that was done to witnesses in a capital crime case. We don't today have a judicial, Jewish judicial system, but back in the day when the Jews had sovereignty over the land and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, was the highest court in the land, they maintained a system of courts and also a system of judgments. And the Talmud outlines what were the procedures of vetting and cross-examining witnesses of all kinds of court cases. So when there is a capital crime or an alleged capital crime, the witnesses are giving over evidence that could potentially put the defendant in risk of losing their life. So, of course, we're much more careful to ask them questions and to verify, to make sure that they're not making up a story, making up a libelous incident just because they don't like the defendant. Says the Talmud, one of the things that we tell them is the following. Every single human, just one human, the whole world was created for that human. Adam, it's just Adam, Adam and Eve, but it's just one entity of humanity, everything that God created, all the galaxies and all the stars and all the planets and the whole solar system, everything is just for, for mankind, just for one man. And if you, witnesses, if you, you have to know what you're about to do. Because, yeah, you think, oh, you know what? There's billions of people in this world. What does it matter? This guy is kind of a thug anyhow. He didn't do this crime that we allege, but so what? He's not going to be missed. If you think that, you, you're gravely mistaken. This person, this one human, the whole world's created for him. Be very, very careful. Tread very lightly. If you're about to do something here uh, to, a little bit dishonest and you think it doesn't really matter, the entire world's created for not for just for Adam, but for every individual, and including this guy that you hate or that maybe you hate. Be careful not to give any false testimony. And this became like a mantra, not just for the defendant in a capital crime case, but every person, says the Mishnah, Lufikach. Chayev Adam Lomar. Therefore, every person must say, it's an it's obligatory to say, Bishvili Nivraha Olam, the world's created for me. Says Rashi. What does that mean, the world's created for me? It means that I have the responsibility of stewarding the world on my shoulder. 
and I had better not corrupt it with my sins. What it's telling us is, in effect, the whole world's created for me. And what does that mean? Wow, the whole world's mine. Yes, on one hand, it's a very positive message. On the other hand, I have a lot of, I have a lot of, my life matters. Like I just up the states of, I, I, I matter. It's the whole world's for me. On the other hand, my actions, I have to weigh them very delicately because they matter so much. I shouldn't make a blunder. And I think with this Rambam, what this is telling us, it's a deep idea that everything, every hour life matters. And we are at the helm of the most important mission in all of humanity, all of the world. The whole world is all for each one of our lives. It just happens to be that the world that was created for me is also inhabited by the world that was created for you and for you and for you. But each one of us on our own, it's enough a reason for God to create the world. And we're driving and we're flying and we're piloting and we're navigating this world and we may not be aware of the critical consequences of our behavior. We don't realize necessarily that it's four in the morning and we're driving and we have precious cargo and our actions really, 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 really matter. And if we lose, take our eyes off the road or lose focus or start to daydream or start to ignore the world or turn around behind us, what could happen? It could be a total devastation. What's Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. Rosh Hashanah is D-Day. This is the day that we're planning for. We want to make sure that our paths are, uh, are focused, that our goals are in our crosshairs, that our trajectory is pointing in the right direction, that we're heading where we want to be going, that we're firmly ensconced on the wheel, laser-focused towards our destination on this day. It's called a day of judgment. Why is it a day of judgment? We'll see in a little bit kind of the historical basis for it. But it's a day of judgment to say, are you doing your job to make sure that you are shepherding the whole world that you're carrying with you in a prudent way? Are you up to the task of being someone who's been granted with so much responsibility? This is a very critical mission. And what, and if we look at the whole holiday in general, we see it's all about kind of orienting us towards kind of waking up and realizing the importance of our behavior and of our actions and of our life. I want to read to you from another Rambam. This is a very famous teaching of the Rambam, also in the Laws of Repentance. This is how he begins. Even though the mitzvah of blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, the real reason why, we don't know. The Torah says, blow shofar Rosh Hashanah, we blow shofar Rosh Hashanah. Still, says the Ram, even though the, the real reason is because God said so, still, it's clearly hinting a certain message, as if to say, Wake up those who are sleeping from your slumber, and those that are totally asleep from your dreams. 
That's what the message of the chauffeur. The chauffeur is the alarm clock. <clears throat> the chauffeur is the buzzing. All the new cars today, they have all kinds of anti-drowsing technology. They have those, if you gonna veer out of the lane, it starts beeping, it moves you back. We know the highways, they have these ridges on the sides of the highway that if you kind of drive over, your, your, your wheels start to, your tires start to vibrate and kind of wakes you up and brings you back, you know, hopefully help you get back, not, God forbid, hit the guardrail. Uh, they have uh, the newer cars have all this technology to kind of measure the time between your blinks to see if you're drowsy. And it'll start flashing icons. It'll make these very loud noises. They have even apps that do that. What is the Jewish version of this? What is this wake up signal that we have at this mission critical job responsibility that we all have, says the Rambam. That's what the chauffeur is. The chauffeur is the spiritual clarion call waking us up from our slumber. And what is it supposed to tell us? Continues the Rambam. Examine your deeds. And return in repentance. What does it mean to return in repentance? It means to realize where you're driving. Are you going this way? Are you going that way? Are you doing this? Are you, God forbid, heading the wrong way? Are you driving off a cliff? To return. Return to the proper path. Return to the path where you're heading in the direction that really you ought to go. V'zichru barachem. And remember your creator. Remember God, your creator, who created you for a mission, for a responsibility. Don't forget about God. Continues the Rambam. These are the people that forget the truth because of all the noise, all the maelstrom of time. There's so many distractions. You're trying to concentrate on the road and all kinds of things are disrupting your ability to concentrate on the road. <laughs> when we left Canada uh, a few weeks ago, we decided we we're going to look for the um, license plates and see how many different states we could come across. We actually, over the course of our three-day journey, we found 44 out of 50 state license plates, the only ones that we didn't find, of course, Alaska and Hawaii, uh, but four other ones that uh, we didn't find. Some of them were surprising, but we'd find South Carolina and Rhode Island and Nevada and Wyoming. We saw both Dakotas. We saw Montana. I was telling this to someone in shul, and he said to me, well, actually, when I was a little kid, in our family, we were also on a road trip, and we were also looking for license plates, and as we were looking for a license plate, they got into an accident. So we don't look at license plates anymore. This is it. Like it's We're driving, and, and we're distracted. And when you're distracted, lots of terrible things can happen. And that, of course, is all by design. Who designed all these distractions? It's also from God. But that tension, that's where God wants us to be. We're, we're, at, we're at this... We have the responsibility, we have this mission, and we have all the other things pulling us away from the mission. And the Torah is there, and the, and the holidays, and certainly the high holidays are there, kind of to rope us back in, to reel us back in, to put us back on track, heading where we need to go. Continues the Rambam. These are the people who forget about the important things, about the truth, because of all the distractions of the time, and they waste their whole year with all kinds of nonsense and all kinds of empty activities that don't help them and don't save them. Says the chauffeur, 
Examine your soul. Improve your paths and your ways. Each one of them should abandon the improper path and the thoughts which are improper, which are not correct. This is the Rambam. He's, he's kind of zoning in on what Rosh Hashanah is. Rosh Hashanah is a day to remember God and to reorient our path in life. And that, of course, is aided to us by the chauffeur. This is the day where it matters more than any other day. This is the day that we're judged. This is the day that we're examined. This is the day where the Almighty is looking at all the people who he's given so much latitude and so much responsibility and so much trust in to say, I, you, you have a role. You have free will. I'm going to give you the flexibility to chart your own path. Which path are you going to choose? This is the day where he judges us. And therefore, this is the day we got to make sure we realign. It's like when you see the cop on the side of the road, you slam the brakes, make sure you kind of toe the line, make sure you don't do anything that's somewhat objectionable. Well, this is the speed trap, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a time where the cop's going to stop us. We want to make sure that we wake up, we're aware, we're alert, we're driving the right direction, we do everything that is that is proper. And I think if you look at some of the other ideas that really surface on the holiday, we see kind of how the prayers and the themes and the mitzvos and the liturgy, they're all kind of designed to kind of make us, again, wake up, smell the coffee, realize what we're doing, evaluate, assess who we are, where we're going, what are we living for, what what really matters, kind of to, 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 to get out of the day-to-day nonsense, the day-to-day hubbub, the day-to-day haziness that clouds our vision and our purpose and our focused effort of, of, of action and kind of zooming up and saying, okay, well, where are we heading to? Where we come from? What's the plan? How much do we need to do? What do we need to do? Let's figure out what we need to do to get back on track. So for example, if you notice throughout the high holidays and especially in Rosh Hashanah, there is a theme that we reference quite frequently uh, in somewhat uh, alarming uh, graphic detail. And that is the idea of human mortality, the fact that we're going to die, and the fact that we may die this year. And we look back and say, well, who died this past year? Rosh Hashanah, well, that's when it was the creed. Uh, there's a, the famous prayer, the Unisana Tokef, uh, which is one of the highlights of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We kind of lay it out. This is what's going to happen. Rosh Hashanah is going to be written down. Yom Kippur is going to be signed. What's going to be in this upcoming year? Who's going to live and who's going to die? And not only that, we get even more graphic, get into grisly detail and all the different kinds of ways people die. And we list the natural ones and the unnatural ones and the things that are so macabre and grisly that it's kind of very powerful and very evocative. And it's also a little bit out of character. Who's going to die out of thirst? And who's going to die with a sword? And who's going to die with a wild animal? Who? It's it, You look at all the other prayers of the year, we don't really find anything remotely similar to this. Rosh Hashanah comes and let's talk about death and what that means. But not just death. Let, let's get into the nitty gritty. How are you going to die potentially over this next year? It seems kind of odd. In addition, 
the Talmud says that all the books are open. I think this also appears in the liturgy. The books of the living and the books of the dead. Ooh. Which one do you want to be written in? There's three books. The righteous one, they go straight to life. And the wicked one, they go straight to death. And the Bainonim, the in-between ones, well, they're up in the air. We'll give them 10 days to figure it out. Yom Kippur will decide. How are you going to act? Which, which book are you going to pivot over to? Again, these very kind of graphic interactions with human mortality that we, that we, that we invoke on, on Rosh Hashanah. And I was thinking that, that I think this really does connect to the central theme of Rosh Hashanah, that it's, it's a time to, to wake up. It's a day of judgment. When you're about to be judged, you make sure that you're prepared. You put on the suit. You put on the best tie that you got. You try to cover up all the tattoos. You want to look as presentable as possible to the judge, to the jury. That, that's, it's a day of judgment. It's a day you want to be on your best behavior. And the problem is, is that we're so drunk in life that we're not likely to be in the best behavior because we haven't been there since last Rosh Hashanah or last Yom Kippur. We need like a jolt. We need the chauffeur. And the chauffeur has this hallowed sound that kind of stirs within us. It's like a sound that our ears hear, but it seems to kind of penetrate deeper. It kind of hits our soul, our soul that's been lying dormant all year. That's been languishing in the abyss of our innards. Our soul is hopefully going to be stirred awake. Maybe we'll have a shot of grabbing the wheel and having some influence on what we're doing in our life. You know what else gives us, gives us that same jolt, that same little dose of caffeine to make sure that we're on the right path? Ruminating on our own death. The reason why we are not focused like a laser beam on what life is really about. The reason why we have all these distractions and all these things that pull us away from the central mission that we're here for, it's only because of an illusion, an illusion that this world is permanent. This is the one we've got. This is the one we got to focus on and anything else. Well, that's something that's the afterlife. That's beyond the purview of my behavior today. When we ruminate, on our own mortality, on the fact that we're not here forever, that we may die, in fact, this upcoming year. Not only that, we'll die. Everyone dies. No, 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 no. It might happen like this, and it might happen like that. All that's kind of making it more real within us to hopefully shatter that illusion that life here is permanent. We we all know that we're going to die, but we don't think about it that often. And us not thinking about it that often, or certainly not thinking about it on a very visceral level, makes us kind of forget about it. And when it leaves our purview, well, all kinds of other priorities can surface. When you think about the fact that you're going to die and you kind of dwell upon it, might be a little bit uncomfortable, but it is a very valuable experiment because it kind of puts everything back into focus. It puts everything back into perspective. It makes you kind of be able to make a more balanced evaluation of what you're living for. And I think it's also, a, pardon the pun, it's a death knell to the Yetzirah. The Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos on page 5a that there's four tactics to battle and to contend with the evil inclination. And it begins, first you try this and then you try that. It's like almost like a battle plan. 
The first thing you try to do is do this. If that doesn't work, well, then option B. If that doesn't work, well, option C. If all three don't work, what's the nuclear option? What's the thing that will for sure work? Yastir lo yomamisa. Remind yourself of the day of death. And the Talmud does not say, well, what if that doesn't work? That is guaranteed to work. It always works. It has undefeated. If you ruminate on your own mortality, it's the surest antidote to the Yetzirah, to the evil inclination. It's power. The power of the distraction. The power of forgetting God. Remember, the Talmud tells us that the Yetzirah, evil inclination, is the foreign God. It's anything, any force that supplants God. Ramam says we have to remember God in Rosh Hashanah. So we blow the shofar to remember God. What does that mean? It means we forgot God. Well, what replaced it? Whatever replaces God is called the Yetzirah, evil inclination. It's the foreign God. Well, how do you kind of shake its grip? How do you free yourself from its tentacles? It's only because it's able to thrive on the fiction that your demise, that's that's obscure. That's, that's out of the picture. That's something we don't worry about for the next 70 years. And once we kind of shatter that illusion, once we kind of come face to face with the idea that we will die, hopefully not this year, hopefully not for the most 70, 80, 90, 150 years, but it will happen. Once that kind of, once that actually registers, we're well on our way to accomplishing the meaning, the, 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 the kind of the touch point of, of Rosh Hashanah. Where we're trying to go, we're trying to, oh, to kind of have that reshifting of priorities, get back on the road and keep on trucking, this time kind of staying awake. We're waking up our soul within us and hopefully having it have a say in determining what we're living for. You know, there's a, a teaching in the beginning of the uh, the third chapter of Perkeavos. And again, it's a teaching that's very similar to the teaching of the Talmud that we just mentioned. And it makes the same guarantee. The same exact thing. Akavya ben Mahalalel Omer, Akavya son of Mahalalel says, you look at three things, visualize three things, and you will never sin. You won't sin. What are these three things? You got to look at three things, not to know three things. You've got to look at them. You got to dwell upon them. You got to ruminate upon them. You got to visualize them. You won't sin. What are these three things? Know from whence you came. Before and to where you're going, and before whom you are destined to give a reckoning and an accounting. What does this mean? Where do you come from? What are the primordial origins of man? Kind of shameful origins. What is the destiny of man? Rima vitolea, maggots and worms. When they bury you, maggots and worms will munch on your flesh. And before whom are you destined to give an accounting and a reckoning before? Before the Almighty. You visualize these three things, you won't sin. My grandfather pointed out, he says, it doesn't mean to know that you die. 
Everyone knows that they will die. I ask my children, you know that you're going to die? I even tell them, everyone's going to die. That's fine. That's very normal. Happened to every human in history. Every human was born within the next kind of thousand years or so. It depends. Some people live longer than others. They all died. The Mishnah says you have to visualize. Says my grandfather, imagine your lifeless body. Of course, hopefully you'll have a Jewish funeral. The Chavar Kadisha will prepare, will bring it to the mitzvah, take care of it, take good care of it, put it in a nice box. Maybe you'll, they'll carry you. Maybe your friends will be there. Maybe you'll be the oldest one. So it'll be your children, your grandchildren. And just imagine, like you're taking your lifeless body surrounded with your tachrichim, with your burial shrouds, with your talis or whatever, and they're putting it into the ground. And then they, it's a mitzvah, of course, to take the shovel and to cover the earth and visualize that. And that really, we know it's true, but when you visualize it, it impacts you. That's kind of the, the, the visceral sensory idea and that will make you not sin. Because the only reason why you will sin, a sin by definition, according to this Mishnah, is a prioritization of this world over next world. That's what a sin is. And when you realize that this world is temporary and next world is permanent, well, then it's totally illogical to ever prioritize a temporary world over a permanent world. And therefore, once you visualize that and it becomes kind of, it resonates within you that this world is temporary, next world is permanent. Well, you'll never sin. It doesn't make any sense to sin. The only reason why we do sin is because of all this confusion that Yitzhak brings, not realizing that this world is temporary. On Rosh Hashanah, where it's so important to kind of realign what we're living with. Yes, you look at the rest of the days. We don't talk about death. It's not like, we're not like a, a, a cultist in, in Judaism doesn't do that stuff. Uh, we, and even if you talk about the afterlife, it's, it's something that's spoken about very sparingly. It's very powerful, but we don't overuse it. We don't abuse it. But in Rosh Hashanah, it's so important that we don't miss the power of the day. We, we don't, we don't lose the opportunity. You, you gotta pull no, no holds barred. You gotta bring everything you got, all the ammunition you got, including a whole bunch of series of prayers and, and focus on this idea. It's very important on this day more than any other day to make sure that you are aligned with what you're living for, with your priorities. And therefore, we do indeed ruminate on our death. We blow the shofar. We have all these tips and, and, and tools to awaken the soul within us. I want to kind of pivot a little bit to another central pillar of Rosh Hashanah. And I think, you know, there's the, the Day of Judgment component and the fact that you better get in line and kind of the, the more who's going to live and who's going to die angel. But I think there's also a great opportunity uh, on the positive side of, of self-reinvention in Rosh Hashanah. I want to kind of build the, the framework of that idea. So first of all, we know that there's what's called 10 days of repentance, the Aseris Yimei Tshuva. From the first day of Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur, it's 10 days, if you include the first day of Rosh Hashanah and then the seven days in between and then the last day, final day of Yom Kippur, which are known since time immemorial as the 10 days of repentance. It's Aseris Yimei Tshuva. Now, repentance typically is associated with sin, certainly in classical uh, Talmudic uh, sense of the word. Someone sins, 
they want to repent to undo that. If you examine and peruse and scrutinize the prayer and the philosophy, so to speak, of Rosh Hashanah, you don't mention any sin. In contrast, for example, on Yom Kippur, 10 times Yom Kippur, there's the refrain of the Alchet. We mentioned 44 different categories of sin that we did. We do hundreds and hundreds of times talk about sin. We sin, we sin, we sin, we sin. Please forgive us. Whereas Rosh Hashanah, it's also the beginning of the repentance season, so to speak, the first two days of, of the 10 days of repentance, and there's no mention of sin. Instead, the central themes in the prayer are what's called Malchios, which are the 10 verses of God's dominion, of God's kingdom. We highlight God being the master and the dominant power. Uh, there's the shofar, and there's all the verses of remembrance. So I want to kind of understand just how these pieces interconnect. What's the idea of, of judgment, and how does that relate to God's dominion, the judgment, the kingship of it, and how does that connect maybe with the shofar and the remembrance, and how does all this equal a day of repentance, and what does it mean for us? Like, what's the opportunity for me, not just what the danger is, what the responsibility is, so to speak, but what's the opportunity for man to have a spiritual renaissance on Rosh Hashanah? So I think if we go back to the original Rosh Hashanah, we kind of learn a very valuable insight to the actual essence of the day and how it plays out in all the various ways. With all Jewish holidays, it's important, if you really want to understand the the, the essence, uh, the crux of the festival, it's important to go back to the original time, the very first time where that was established, where that was ensconced as a holiday. Uh, so for example, the, the holiday of Pesach is the celebration of the freedom from bondage, and therefore, a lot of the mitzvos and the themes of the day are going to be about freeing ourselves, unshackling ourselves from all the various kinds of subjugation that we may have. So what was the very first Rosh Hashanah? So if you go to the sources, it's quite clear that the Almighty created the world on the 25th day of Elul. That's what the Talmud says, the 25th day of Elul, which is the month before Rosh Hashanah. And the sixth day of creation, that's Rosh Hashanah. That's the first day of Tishrei. And of course, we know, if you read in the beginning of Genesis, the central development of day six is, of course, the creation of man, of, of, of Adam. So in essence, the very first Rosh Hashanah heralded the arrival of men and mankind. So it's almost as if it's the birthday of, of humanity. That, that, that's what's special about this day. This is the day where Adam showed up and therefore there's some renewal of the world and of Adam and of all of us, uh, consequently, on this day. But the commentators explain a very deep point. And this has many ripple effects uh, in understanding Jewish theology. When Adam arrived, it changed not only the world, because now the world's purpose has arrived, and of course it changed mankind, because now mankind's on the scene. It actually affected God's dominion. And the way they explain it is that God existed before the world did. He created it. 
Now, God had complete control, had complete dominion over everything. But there was one thing that was lacking, and that is that nothing existed that could have rejected God. There was nothing, there was no counterweight, so to speak. There was no ability of anything to have rejected God. So God created the world. And God creates angels and all kinds of plants and all kinds of animals. But still, there isn't a creation that has free will, namely the ability to choose to either accept God or reject God. Comes along Adam. And the Midrash embellishes the story by saying, when Adam was created, all the animals said, my goodness, this must be God. Look at this Adam. And they started bowing down to Adam. And Adam said, no, 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 he made a mistake. I'm a creation. The actual creator is the Almighty. And he takes all the animals and they go bow down to God. What the lesson here is, is that Adam could have chosen to reject God. Humanity could reject God or could embrace God. And therefore, God's dominion, God's kingdom, so to speak, changed from an autocracy, from a dictatorship, from him imposing the will against the subject, so to speak, who have no ability to reject it and is being upgraded to a kingdom. A kingdom, the difference between a dominion of uh, of a dictator and dominion of a kingdom is that the kingdom, the king, is it voluntarily nominated by the subjects. So in essence, Rosh Hashanah is the day both of creation of mankind and also the day of augmentation of God's dominion. He was upgraded, so to speak, from being a ruler with absolute authority and no one could possibly have rejected that to being the same ruler with same absolute authority, but now there was someone who could have rejected it, but didn't, who voluntarily accepted God's dominion and thus now has God been upgraded from from a dictator to a king. And what do we see? We see all over the themes of the day, we see 10 verses of kingdom. In the whole year we say God is the holy is the, is is the holy God. Now we say he's the holy king. Hamelech, the word melech appears again and again and again and again throughout the prayers, throughout the holiday. Why? What does Rosh Hashanah have to do with God's kingdom? The answer is, is this is the day that God became king. Why? Because man coronated God initially on this day, and every year man again coronates God. Every year in Rosh Hashanah. It's our birthday, but also the birthday of the consequences of us, of humanity existing, namely that God is king now. And this renews upon itself every year. Every year, this is the day where humanity has that spark of creation. Like This is the birthday of humanity. And it's again the birthday, so to speak, of God's dominion. And every year, God becomes king. Well, what happens when there is a new king? What happens when there's new administration? What happens when the old administration leaves and the new administration takes over? Well, what happens is there's judgment. Every, so to speak, officer is evaluated and judged. Are they going to be kept on board for the next administration or are they going to be discarded? This whole question of judgment on Rosh Hashanah kind of fits into this whole mold of what the holiday is all about. We came 
and therefore we coronated God initially in this day, and therefore every year it repeats upon itself. And therefore every year, that is no result in a judgment. Are we doing our job as individuals in ensuring and maintaining and perpetuating God's kingdom, and therefore we're judged for the positive side? Conversely, if we choose to reject that, then when this evaluation of the new administration is done on Rosh Hashanah, then we are put in that camp. In in essence, what we're saying here is that mankind, humanity, us, our actions, our choices, our priorities, the road that we're talking about, this vehicle of life that we're supposed to be driving, the direction that we're heading, how we choose to live our life, that influences not only us, but God. And what do we do in Rosh Hashanah? It's a day of repentance, but we don't mention sin. Instead, we talk about coronating God. In essence, what we're doing is we're realizing that your behavior, our behavior actually affects God's kingdom. If man voluntarily chooses to accept God and abide by his dicta, then in effect, man is augmenting God's kingdom. And a sin in effect is a reduction in what's called kvot shemayim, or malchus shemayim. The fact that God's dominion now has been diminished, so to speak, by man, because man with man's free will choose, chose to not obey. And therefore, the dominion, of course, God is still the all-powerful and almighty, but the kind of the, 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 the core, the core point of Adam arriving on day six is now been diminished because of sin. So in essence, the underlying repentance of the day, it's not repentance for sin, it's repentance for the direction of life that we, that we may have chosen. And therefore, by coronating God's kingdom again, and by highlighting it, and by dwelling upon that theme, that in effect has the same result as repenting for sin, because that is essentially dealing with the underlying infrastructure of the relationship that we have with God. And I think in this in this light, uh, thanks to this discovery, like, what an opportunity. This is not just about God and God's judgment. This is our birthday. This is the day that we were initiated on Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, what's the power of the day for us? It's the opportunity for us to be recreated to be reinvented. Every day, we have choices that we have to make, and every day we have opportunities that we have. But this is the one day where we could change everything. We could reinvent ourselves. Like we said, we turn around, remember God. Yesterday we forgot God. Today we remember God. Yesterday, like the Ramam says, yesterday our actions ignore God. We were involved in all the nonsense of the day-to-day distractions, and today we wake up. Yesterday our soul was asleep today on Rosh Hashanah, thanks to all the tools of the day and the power of the day, the shofar, ruminating on our own death, the actual essence of the day, which is the day the man was initially created, all that has the ability to kind of give ourselves a spiritual metamorphosis to change everything and to embark on a brand new path. I think kind of in, in this in this light, like it's not just a day, 
you know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of other things that we do in Rosh Hashanah. You know, every, every child knows that on Rosh Hashanah, you dip the apple in the honey and you eat the pomegranates and adults know that the prayer is very, very long and you kind of are flipping through the book. How much more do we have? I feel like I've been here for a long time. I think our next is making a little bit too much noise. It's kind of hot here. There's all kinds of things that we, that we kind of, how we live Rosh Hashanah. And I think it's important for us to kind of get down to the essence of the day. Like, what do we, what, what is the opportunity of the day? What are the states of the day? This is the day of judgment. This is the day of the coronation of God. This is the day of the origination of man. This is when we started. This is when we can get restarted. This is the day when we were invented. This is the day where we can be reinvented anew. We can remember God. We can remember our mortality and use that to readjust what we're living for to become assets to the kingdom of God. I want to conclude with a stirring story that happened uh, to my grandfather, with my grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo Wolby of Blessed Memory. Uh, he spent the duration of the war in Sweden. He was there from 1938 till 1946. And he was involved in all kinds of efforts. Of course, Sweden was neutral during the war, one of the few countries in that region that was. And he was able to use his connections uh, and his security to try to help as, many, help as many Jews as possible during the war. But after the war... There were um, Sweden was in uh, in a fit of uh, humanitarian aid. They opened their doors to a lot of Holocaust survivors, and many of them were v- deathly ill, so frail, so beaten in every way from the trauma and the horror uh, of their experiences. But Sweden welcomed uh, many refugees uh, from the camps uh, to safe harbor. In, in Sweden. So it was Rosh Hashanah of 1945. And my grandfather decided there was, he was living in Stockholm at the time. And he found out about this transport and they had a massive hospitals, makeshift hospitals that they made for all these patients. Many of them were, were facing uh, terminal Ill- illness. And he decided he's going to leave the city and go spend Rosh Hashanah of that year with these refugees. And he said that that year, he took his chauffeur with him. And all he did, the whole Rosh Hashanah, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't there was no minion. He couldn't join a minion. He forsook the, the minion and he just went from room to room. Patient after patient to patient, Jewish patient, went through the horror and hell of the Holocaust, and he just went and blew chauffeur. One after another, from the morning to night. That's what he did for that Rosh Hashanah. And the next day, he said, many, many of those patients that were there the previous day had already expired overnight. The conditions we can't possibly fathom. And he did it again the second day as well. And he, he said afterwards, and this is probably not surprising, he never had, even though he wasn't praying and he wasn't surrounded by like people, he was in a hospital with 
probably nurses and doctors trying to save as many lives as they could. He never had a more powerful, evocative Rosh Hashanah like this one. And I was thinking, like, this is what the day is. We don't know if we're going to live, we're going to die. We don't know how much, what God has in store for us. We don't know how much longer we have on, uh, on this earth. We don't know, like, how could we be secure? We have the chauffeur. The chauffeur is here to wake us up. Wake us up from our, our slumber, put us back on the right track. And hopefully, through all these themes and all these tools and all these prayers and all these opportunities that we're given, we can reinvent ourselves. We could, like Adam, Adam, the day before Roshana didn't exist. The day of Roshana, he did, and the whole world changed. Everything changed because of him. The whole world's created for us. We, we, we are Adam. Each one of us. It happens to be there's other Adams. Okay. But we're the only one that matters. Of course, we're not the only one that matters. But we could think about that. The whole world orients around me. I'm like Adam, so to speak, in a certain realm. And this is this is our day. This is our opportunity. And this is, of course, there's there's it's an amazing golden opportunity to to really change ourselves and to kind of reevaluate what we're living for and put ourselves back on the right track. That's, I think, the positive side. But it's also on the flip side. Like, it's a day of judgment. It's a very serious day. It's a day where the stakes could not possibly be higher. We're driving the car. We're driving the minivan. It's not just the family. It's everyone. All of humanity. Everyone's there with you. You couldn't possibly think of greater stakes. And we have the chauffeur. And we have all the prayers. And we have all the tools. All an opportunity to hopefully be the person on Rosh Hashanah who says, you know what? I'm going to coronate God. And when you coronate God, of course, what what are you doing? You're evicting the imposter. There's someone else sitting on that throne within our hearts, the Yitzhara, the false God, the foreign God. And we're evicting him. And we're saying, no, no, no the, the real God. The, the, don't, don't make the mistake that the animals made bowing down to Adam. No, no, no. There's, there's the, one, the one powerful God. And by doing that, we'll become a veritable asset for God's new kingdom and we could really change our life. With one Rosh Hashanah, we could change our, life, our lives forever. And my hope and my blessing to all of us, and myself included, is that we make this Rosh Hashanah the most meaningful and impactful and transformational Rosh Hashanah that we've ever had, taking all the opportunities that were given to us. It's like the, thank God for the guy on the side who made those bumps that we get back in the lane and all these things that were given to us to be able to maximize our impact here in life and to have hopefully a sweet and happy and healthy and prosperous new year. Everyone should be blessed with a Kasiva Chasima Tova. You should be written, inscribed in the book of life, stamped in the book of life, have an amazing, amazing year. And thank you all for listening. And this was a great year. And I look forward to another fantastic year in 5779.